Thank you, Adam. Pray with me uh, briefly, then we will stand, and I will read a select portion from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, that is not listed for you, but I'll tell you it. But let us pray. Blessed and holy, Lord God Almighty, how majestic, how powerful you are as you reign over heaven and earth. And we declare your praise, acknowledging you as the maker of heaven and earth and therefore the rightful owner. We declare that by thy hand, the word of your power, you spoke. And all things came into existence when there is nothing but thee in thy triune eternal glory. Truly, you are to be worshipped and adored and humbly loved for who you are. But Lord God, we confess what thy truth tells us that we love because you first loved us. Thou art ahead of us in all things, eternally ahead of us. We humble ourselves before thee. O Father, as we approach this blessed sacred text, we pray for mercy that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, illumined, that we might know what is the hope of our calling the surpassing power of thy greatness towards us as thy children, who have been gifted with the gift of faith. Speak, O Lord, this day through the Bible, through the text of Holy Scripture. Give us this day our daily bread. For Christ's sake and Christ's glory, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, 14 and 15, and then we'll go to 27 through 30, 27 through 30. So John chapter 10, 14, 15, 27 through 30. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Beloved brothers and sisters, how glorious it is for me to look out and behold the beautiful blessing of the Spirit of God's unity, peace, 
and communion in our midst. Truly, his spirit has soothed and healed us and brought a much deeper peacefulness and love for one another through the travail of 2020. <laughs> All glory and praise be unto our Father in heaven. Now, what a blessed, challenging, incredibly blessed, challenging chapter is John, the 10th chapter. And we remember and confess that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Thus, we receive chapter 10 as following naturally in the Holy Spirit's mind from the previous chapters. Last Lord's Day, we witnessed Jesus address the issue of the false shepherds he had argued with in chapter 8 and then demonstrated in chapter 9 what a true shepherd looks like in his behavior to the blind by the wayside, to the wounded who religious folk typically ignore. We then saw his blessed voice speak, saying that he knows and leads his sheep. And the sheep know him, and the sheep hear his voice, and they go in and out and find pasture. So where did you find pasture this week? I'm not at all asking about a fenced-off area of grass. I'm asking about Scripture, Bible. Where did you find pasture this week? Have you sought his voice in Scripture? Did you go in and out of sacred Scripture, your Bible, seeking his voice? I pray so. For it is in the garden of God's word that you will be met by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit who will feed, tend, convict, comfort, guide you through the living word of God, the Bible. Psalms 27. <clears throat> When thou didst say, Seek my face, my heart said to thee, Thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we saw Christ Jesus in the style of deity assert that he is the good shepherd. I am, I am the good shepherd. He then began describing the entailments or consequences of his being the good shepherd. And the fourth and final thing we saw last Sunday was that Christ said, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. How deeply I have been touched meditating on the fact that visualizing myself being brought into this by sticks, briars, brambles, fold with an opening that when I'm inside, my Lord and Savior, my God, is stretched out across the opening and I am safe. Wow. Well, today in chapter 10, 
we will consider three eternal verities, three eternal truths. First, the cross. Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Second, assurance of salvation. The good shepherd gives his sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. Third, the mystery of our triune God. I and the Father are one. So first, the cross. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's found in verse 11. Look at it there in your open text in front of you. Verse 11, he says it. Verse 15, he says it again. Verse 17, verse 18. It's clearly on his mind of great importance. And it is of deep interest to us that that this image of Christ Jesus, the good shepherd, in relationship to us as sheep, speaks of an autocratic rule, a sovereign rule. Sheep are not like cats. Ever try to herd cats? Sheep are not like cats. The sheep are not in charge. The shepherd is. Sheep who are pridefully arrogant are ultimately challenging the shepherd. Very unwise. Very foolish. If we've learned anything from Ezekiel 34 and John 10, they will be dealt with. By him, we have seen this. But observe verse 10. Jesus is saying that his shepherding is benevolent, not malevolent. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. In fact, the truth of the matter is, if something were to happen to that Palestinian shepherd and he dies of a heart attack or something... It's disaster for the sheep. But upon the death of the good shepherd, it is life for us, the sheep. Notice that Jesus intensifies from verse 11 to 15. In verse 11, he abstractly, almost, he said he's the good shepherd, but he says, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But in verse 15, he personalizes it and says, I will lay down my life for the sheep. And then verse 17, wondrously we are told that the Father loves him as the eternal Son because he lays down his life for the sheep. Listen to John Calvin on this verse. But as he was made man on our account, and as the Father delighted in him, in order that he might reconcile us to himself, we need not wonder if he declares it to be the reason why the Father loves him 
that our salvation is dearer to him than his own life. This is a wonderful commendation of the goodness of God to us and ought justly to arouse our whole souls into rapturous admiration that not only does God extend to us the love due to the only begotten Son, but he refers it to us as the final cause. And indeed, there was no necessity that Christ should take upon him our flesh in which he was beloved, but that it might be the pledge of the mercy of his Father in redeeming us. What a thought. The taking on of our flesh, the pledge of the Father's mercy in redeeming us. Calvin wonderfully comments further, we ought to contemplate the death of Christ so as to remember at the same time the glory of his resurrection. Thus we know that he is life because in his contest with death he obtained a splendid victory and achieved a noble triumph. Amen. Observe what verse 18 tells us about his life. He says, no one takes it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. How many times have we seen, I haven't counted them, but they pick up stones to stone him and he eludes them. He just disappears. He walks right through their midst. It's not his time. He was not taken off guard. He laid down his life for us. Christ offered himself for the salvation of his flock. And Calvin says, and by this Christ clearly intended, why does he tell the disciples this? By this Christ clearly intended to strengthen and fortify his disciples so that when they would see him oppressed and drug away and beaten, scourged, nailed to a cross, they would not be dismayed but might acknowledge that it was done by the wonderful providence of God that he should die for the redemption of the flock. And even so, the apostles testified, Pentecost sermon, Peter, this man, speaking of Christ, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Notice that. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. This man was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, sovereignty. But you're still guilty. You crucified human responsibility. So first Jesus speaks of his cross, saying, I will lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 15 and then we come to the cross gives us assurance of salvation. The good shepherd gives his sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. As a child of God, I am the recipient of eternal life 
that will never have an end to this story. They lived happily forever after is the truth of the gospel. And while the emphasis of Zoe life is on its quality rather than its quantity, yet here Christ says it will go on forever. We make the confession in the Gloria Patri, world without end. Amen. Amen. Now, as I get older, that becomes more precious. But I confess to try to conceptualize forever. There's just no stop. There's no ending. Nobody says it's time to go to bed. It's time for a nap. There's no end. It is just forever and ever and ever. This is good. Amen. This is his gift. Christ says further, they shall never perish. They shall, verse 28, they shall never perish. That Christ's sheep will never perish references the second death, eternal hell in the lake of fire. The same apostle John speaks in, in Revelation, I think it's 20, Revelation 20 verse 11 where he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from whose presence earth and sky fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Do you understand that? God keeps books in heaven in which is written every single thing you've ever done wrong, ever thought wrong, ever said wrong, ever failed to do right. Everything is kept by God in heaven. But there's another book. While the dead are judged by what's written in those books, there's a book of life. And the scripture says, let's go back to the previous. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, thinking caps, I can visualize a man being cast into a lake of fire. But how does one cast death into a lake of fire? That's more conceptual. How do you cast the place of the dead, Hades, into the lake of fire? I don't understand it. And you say, well, it's just a figurative language. But what you err here is if it is figurative and it's not really a lake of fire, then the Spirit's best effort to describe hell was a lake of fire. But the true reality is immensely beyond the concept of being in a lake of fire forever. Learn to think 
solidly through the scripture. And then it says, Revelation 20, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And here's the verse 15, 2015. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God keeps books. But Jesus the Lamb has a book in which is written the name of every child of God. Every child of God. And if your name is in the book of the Lamb, you will never perish. You will never perish. Children of God whose name is written in the book of life will not be thrown into the lake of fire. Eternal praise to God our Father for Jesus Christ. But then observe, he says, verse 28, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. How blessedly precious that our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ, but upon his firm grip on us. When our son was very small and we'd go to the mall, a thing I wonder, why did we ever do that? But we'd never do it now. But when he was very small, a toddler, I, I could have said, Nathan, hold on to me. Right. I had a death grip around his wrist. His safety was not dependent upon his hold on me. His safety was dependent upon his father's hold on him. And no less is this true that our safety is dependent upon Christ's firm grip on us. Do you feel weak in your faith? Do not despair. You may be weak, but his grip is not. We are bruised reeds, faintly burning wicks, but the Lord's servant does not crush or break bruised reeds. He doesn't quench faintly burning wicks. We are safe in the eternal hands of our Savior. Now observe that this verse does not teach that his sheep will be spared all earthly disasters, but that they will be saved no matter what earthly disaster may befall them. Isaiah 43, God declares, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We may pass through fire. We may pass through deep water. But we will not 
as it were, drown. For if I do physically drown, I'm with Jesus instantly. Hmm. Do you sense the uncertainty that pervades culture around us? It's everywhere. Child of God, our master said, in this world you have trouble, <laughs> but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Yeah, you do have. You're going to have trouble. Don't, don't worry about tomorrow. It'll take care of itself. Yes, you're going to have, but don't. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Brethren, we are going to make it through. We are going to make it through. Providence Presbyterian is going to make it through. All things in this horizontal plane may radically change, don't we know? Nations may rise up, mountains may slip into the heart of the sea, but we will make it through because our God and Father has promised, has pledged that through Jesus Christ, his eternal beloved Son, we have been given eternal life and we will never perish. And no one can snatch us from his hand. So, so I may be given a life-threatening diagnosis. My, my financial plans may crumble, but we will cross over Jordan. We will enter the celestial city. We will hear the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who still live will be gathered to the Lord Jesus to be together forever. In the presence of our God and Savior, we will make it through. Well, verse 29, Christ shifts to his Father, to God the Father. And interesting, says that the Father gives his sheep to the Son. Look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me, who? The sheep. We are at the most ultimate, in basic intrinsic sense, a love gift from the Father to the Son. And we thought it was all about us. But ultimately, it's a gift from the Father to the Son, which involves us because we're the gift. I ain't much of a gift. Ask my wife. But wait till you see me in heaven. Hmm. Some of us we won't recognize in heaven, will we? If you have to think about that one, ask somebody. If you are a child of God, it is because God the Father gave you to the Son. But I don't feel like a gift. Well, are my self-perceptions accurate or is his word accurate? And yes, we are none of us beautiful, fairest Lord Jesus. None of us like Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is beautifying his church even as he brooded over creation to beautify it. 
In 2020, the Spirit of God brooded over this church and has been beautifying it with some heavenly virtues, one of which is humility. And that's a beautiful thing. So how is the beautification process going with you as the Spirit of God works on your character and disposition as he leads you in and out, finding pasture in his holy word? If you have a plan, stick with it. If you don't, go to the website. There are multiple Bible reading plans there. If you've slipped and not done it for weeks, Start today, March 14th. Just keep at it. Well, verse 28 is in the future tense. No one shall, will snatch them out of my hand. But verse 29 is set in an ongoing present tense. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the cross gives assurance of salvation, which is based on, third, the mystery of the Trinity. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Christ, do you see this in the text? Christ explains that you can't be snatched out of my hand, you can't be snatched out of the Father's hand. Now, but he explains this by then verse 30 saying, the explanation for this is, I and the Father are one. You will recall from the opening sermons on this wondrous gospel that, that the prologue, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, was described as a prelude or overture to the gospel as a whole. For John began with, as it were, musical strains of thought and concepts that, that were introduced to us that he would then later come to, even as late as ch chapter 10. We thus approached the first verse of John chapter 1 and found a startling contrast. You might look at that with me, John 1.1. 1, 1. A startling contrast between the second and the third phrases. Second phrase... And the word was with God, with cross, face to face with God. Third phrase, and the word was God. We observed that 1-1-B, the second phrase, clearly asserts a subject-object distinction between the word and God. For God is posited out there and the word is with God. Two separate beings or persons, hence within the Godhead, there is an eternal diversity between at least two eternal persons, the Word and God. But then verse 1, 1c, the third phrase clearly asserts an identification of the two that is strong and absolute. For we are told that the Word was God. And hence, within the Godhead, there is an eternal unity which mirrors precisely the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
So one, one B, and the word was with God, diversity. One, one C, and the word was God, unity. Now up to this point in the gospel, the spirit of God's purpose has been primarily to show us the glorious truth of this father-son relationship within the Godhead. And in doing so, the Spirit of God is portraying the diversity of persons within the Godhead. Namely, there's a father and a son, eternally. Chapter 5, where Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I myself am working, is perhaps the clearest of these portrayals of a diversity of persons within the Godhead. The Jews want to kill him because he's making himself equal with God. John 1.19, after the prologue, up to this point of 10.30, the scripture has supported and undergirded the second phrase of the first verse, chapter 1, that there is a plurality within a diversity within the Godhead. Specifically, one is called God the Father and the other God the Son from eternity past. And the Father is the one who sent the Son. Did you notice that? When Larry read from John 17, the close of the high priestly prayer, Jesus does not pray, Father, I praise you that they've come to believe in me. He says, Father, I praise you that they have come to believe and know that you sent me. Huge difference. But here in 1030, we have this most amazing statement, I and the Father are one. This is not primarily a fulfillment of 1-1-B, and the word was with God. This is 1-1-C, and the word was God. Listen to John Gerstner, Reformed theologian. He said, uh, I'm sorry, that's a quote. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Surely that sounds like he who has seen me has seen the Father. But there is this difference. In the statement we've been discussing, Jesus claims a one-to-one -one identification between himself and the Father. But in saying, I and the Father are one, he indicates not a one-to-one -one identity, but a two-in-one identity, if I may use that expression. He has in mind two persons when he says, I and the Father are one, referring obviously to himself in distinction from the Father. He emphasizes at the same time that he is one with the Father. I and the Father are one. Gerstner goes on, says, so here we have a reference to two persons in one Godhead. Do we not? Very clear. And does that not indicate, he goes on, the doctrine of the Trinity in principle? In other words, we have here a reassertion of the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Unity of the divine essence or being. 
But at the same time, we see that Christ is distinct from the Father. And Gerstner concludes, So we have in the phraseology of the traditional Trinitarian doctrine a reference to two of the three persons of the Godhead. The Son and the Father are one in the same divine essence. Leon Morris writes, the bracketing of I and the Father is significant in itself, quite apart from the predicate, one. Who else would be linked with God the Father in this fashion? And the word one is in the neuter. It's not masculine. One thing, not one person. Identity is not asserted, but essential unity is. Augustine comments, in these two words, in that he said one, he delivers thee from Arius. Arius, Arianism, first heresy. In our day, we know them as Jehovah Witnesses. A denial that Jesus is God. Jesus is not God, he's just a man. Augustine, in these two words, in that he said one, he delivers thee from Arius. In that he said are, he delivers thee from Sibelius. Sibelius? Sibelius was the bishop who first started what's called Sibelianism. Today we call it oneness Pentecostal. Oh. You see, these things have roots. So, Jehovah Witness and Oneness Pentecostal. In these two words, Augustine, in that he said, one, he delivers thee from Jehovah Witness doctrine. In that he said, are, he delivers thee from Oneness Pentecostal doctrine. If one, therefore, not diverse, if are, therefore, both Father and Son... So Jesus flatly contradicts Jehovah Witness doctrine by saying the Father and I are one. Jesus is God. Jesus flatly contradicts oneness Pentecostal doctrine by saying the Father and I are. Not I wear a mask sometimes as a father and sometimes I put on the mask of a son because there's only one person. That's oneness Pentecostal. Gregory Nazianzen, Cappadocian church father, said this. And you've heard this before. We'll close with this. No sooner do I conceive of the one, oneness of God, than I am illumined by the splendor of the three persons. No sooner do I distinguish them, the Father from the Son from the Holy Spirit, than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole. And my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. All theology leads to doxology.
Brethren, Trinitarian Christianity blazes forth from this verse, which asserts the deity of both the Father and the Son. We have seen then Jesus as the Good Shepherd. I encourage you to listen again to last week's sermon. You need to ponder it. What does a Good Shepherd look like? How does he behave? Today, we have seen that at the cross, the Good Shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. So the cross gives assurance of salvation and the cross giving assurance of salvation is based on the fact that we are held in the hand of the Son and of the Father and that they are one. Let's pray. Father, we bless and praise your holy name. Lord Jesus, we exalt you as God in the flesh. Spirit of God, we bow before you as you brood over us. You are one God in three persons, and we praise and bless your name. We thank you for the confidence this gives us of our salvation. We thank you that we do not live in fear that we could fall away, because though we might, you won't let go. Oh, Lord, hold on to us tight. Some of us here today, Lord, are struggling and hurting with temporal fears and anxieties. Let them feel the tightness of your grip upon them and their loved ones. We bless your name, and we pray this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.